Hello and welcome to the Tudor Her Story. Today's episode is with Clemmy Bennett talking all things Catherine of Aragon. Hello Clemmy, thank you for joining me. Hi Jessica, thank you so much for inviting me today. It's my absolute pleasure. I'm really excited to talk all about Catherine of Aragon and a bit about your book as well. Well, me too. So before we get on to Catherine of Aragon, I thought we could talk a little bit about yourself. So firstly, where did your interest in history begin? Well, I think I've always been interested. I can't really trace back to where it started, but as I was little, I had an obsession for ancient Egypt and all the gods, and then it went to Louis the Fourteenth of France, and and then eventually I discovered the Tudor monarchs. Um, I'm French, so we don't learn about them at school, and really I found out about them quite late. And it's it was thanks to the TV show The Tudors. <laughs> so when I tell you that I was immediately fascinated it was like immediately and at first I thought the show was really well made and and then I started googling all the characters and finding out about the real people behind the names and I realized that the show was taking just massive liberties with history and I think that's when I fell into a google Tudor rabbit hole and I started reading books about the period and just I would just never stop. Oh, amazing. I mean, I the Tudors again for me, it was I kind of I watched that and it was a rabbit hole for me as well. And I was like, oh I love this. And I was like, it, but it's so incorrect. <laughs> I know. In the way that they, they did that correctly though, they bring you in and they they start they spark an interest. So that's for this it's well done. Yeah, to be fair, it is all done. And I, I only watch it for Natalie Dormer if I do watch it now. So, <laughs> Well, she's gorgeous. She's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. So you mentioned briefly how you got onto the Tudor period. But why do you love the Tudor period? Well, I think that the past always influences the present. It's well known. But it's safe to say that Tudor England is one big chapter of England's history in terms of importance. Like they've literally shaped today's state religion. Um, and the fact is that they were never supposed to rule. In in French, we have a saying that roughly translates as like a hair on your soup. I don't know if there's an equivalent in English, but that's pretty much how the Tudors arrived one day they were on the throne and no one could have expected them. And I think that's what makes them so interesting. This, and well, let's face it, it's full of drama and we all love drama. You have it all. You have betrayals and revolts and executions, love stories, last, like literally everything. And I think for me, it's also because it's full of ironies. Like, I mean, Henry VIII destroyed everything and everyone for a son just for his daughters to outlive the poor boy and rule in their own name so in a way it's very feminist and I love that yeah absolutely I think you've summed up the Tudor period for everyone <laughs> it is like a whole 
serial drama. It's <laughs> it's not yes. real until you look into it. <laughs> but that's what I mean, though. These um these TV shows they don't need to make up more drama. It's it's already full of it. Yeah, that's why I think when they're like, oh yeah, but we need to do dramatic life. It's like, why? It's it's really scandalous already. <laughs> no, exactly. They did it all for you. You have it on a silver platter. <laughs> Take it and we'll watch it. That's literally no, what we exactly. Want. <laughs> oh my god, I'm waiting for a show like that. Just like everything right. I have actually seen today. It's it's not really Tudor Stewart, but it's about George Villiers and his mum in the court of James the Sixth, and it looks really scandalous and it just looks like it's the facts and I'm like oh I did see the trailer today yes I'm um I have less knowledge on on James the the Sixth, but I think I'm gonna watch it honestly it sounds it sounds really good it looked really good on the trailer yeah I I've got to watch it just for historical purposes only <laughs> <laughs> nothing else Absolutely nothing else. <laughs> so, we have mentioned we're going to talk about Catherine of Aragon, a wonderful lady in Tudor history and often misaligned. I think you could probably agree. Well, I always say that all six ways of Henry VIII deserve respect, but also that Catherine of Aragon is the one that I personally admire the most. I mean, the six of them, they all went through trauma at the hands of the same man. But Catherine of Aragon was dealt with a particularly cruel hand. And throughout it all, she showed resilience, but also she managed to keep her poise and her kindness. And I guess I also love the fact that she was very stubborn, which I can be too. So uh, it's very relatable. Um, but she was also not just stubborn for the sake of being stubborn, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, later on in, a, in this episode. And we, yeah, briefly, I think Catherine of Aragon is was the strongest person I've ever known, and I've never even met her. So yeah, she was she was absolutely brilliant. No, I absolutely agree. I think she's a lot stronger than just the wife that was scorned, but she often gets absolutely dumped with um if, if any listeners and I think you see my page I'm obviously a big Amblin lover however <laughs> they all deserve respect as you say um I think Catherine of Aragon is often seen as a nursemaid a bit as well it's but she's a mm. mate, mother figure I'm really trying to tell my followers my readers or don't know how to call them really I'm really trying to convince people that you can love Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn um, at the same time you can both respect them you can respect them both you can love them both and recognize that they were both incredible ladies and had they not been in this particular situation in fact they would have been friends they had a lot in common and I think that it's very unfair for us to, I mean, obviously we ha we can have a favourite, but it's very unfair for us now to pick sides and really pit them against each other when, in fact, they've, they've been mistreated by the same man. So, you know. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I hope today we can um, myth 
bust that a little bit you know we shouldn't pit them against each other and there's but the plan I, but i did pick up on the word readers just then <laughs> <laughs> Re- this year you published the apple and the tray it was this year wasn't it yes it was uh, on the 28th of june so to celebrate henry d's birthday you know what i never even picked up on that was so glad. <laughs> would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about your book oh yes of course um so the apple and tree is my debut novel i wrote it during the covid lockdowns um it's a historical fantasy mainly set in tudor england and my main character ella inherits a ring from her grandmother which sends her to the past, um, right to Henry VIII's doorstep in 1510. So she has to adapt uh, to the ways of the time, navigate court, and just just survive, really. Uh, but along the way, she's tempted to use her knowledge to change history. And it was really, really fun to write that book. Honestly, I had to do extensive research, you know, to get it just right. Um, I wanted the novel to be written from the perspective of a modern woman. Um, So it could be as relatable as possible, but also to show that she did have to shift her perspective from 2020 to 1510, which is something that we as readers have to do too. Um, But at the same time, I really wanted uh, to write something that was as historically accurate as it could because nothing irritates me more than a poorly researched historical fiction. So I'm really trying my best on that. <laughs> no, um, I personally love your book. And if listeners haven't read Thank it yet, you. I will leave a link down below to buy it. Because I think I always have a bit of an issue with historical you know, fantasy. So I'm, always, I'm a bit like, no, this has got to all be true. But the book felt so real because you had mm. described the whole setting accurate so it felt like yeah she she was totally there so it's fine (laughs) I'm the time traveler (laughs) (laughs) it's fine I'm imposing on her history (laughs) (laughs) no I guess it's um it's a book I've been wanting to read for a while and I couldn't I couldn't really find it there are some that are maybe similar-ish but I could not find that one so I wrote it I wish I had the courage to do what you're doing, especially because, again, it's a fantastic book and I'm hoping to see a sequel very soon. Well, thank you. I'm working on it. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So I think we've had a little bit of a chat amongst ourselves, but we need to get on to the main lady, Catherine of Aragon. Absolutely. And there's a lot to get through when it comes to Catherine of Aragon. Oh my God, we're going to be here for hours. (laughs) I think we should talk about the early years of Catherine of Aragon first because I think she's got quite an interesting childhood compared to the other wives, especially especially her family. No, absolutely. So um, first thing first, Catherine, or her birth name was Catalina, was born on the 16th of December 1485 in uh, Alcala de Henares in Spain, and I apologize for my pronunciation, never studied Spanish, Uh, but yeah, she was a Sagittarius queen, I suppose. 
And um, she was the daughter of King Ferdinand II of Aragon and Queen Isabella I of Castile. Ferdinand ruled Aragon and Isabella ruled Castile in her own right. Um, so although the kingdoms were still separate states, Ferdinand and Isabella were basically co-ruling Spain, a unified Spain. And it's important to note that Catherine grew up watching a queen rule in her own name, in her own right. It really shaped Catherine growing up. She watched and she learned from Isabella and she, she really witnessed firsthand how a woman could rule as well as a, as a man, if not better, you know. Yeah, so Catherine was from a dynasty called the Trastamara dynasty. Again, sorry if I'm not pronouncing it right. Um, but basically this dynasty ruled the kingdom of Castile and the kingdom of Aragon through different branches of the family. On her father's side, kings and queens of Aragon, and on her mother's side, uh, kings and queens of Castile. And yeah, as for as with every dynasty, I think there's been some power struggle within the family. So I guess you could say that, yeah, she she the family went through their own Spanish version of the Wars of the Roses. So Catherine was fully prepared. But actually, what is what is very important, like most people don't know that Catherine was herself um a descendant of John of Gaunt, the, the son of Edward III of England. So she was not just a Spanish princess. She was John of Gaunt's descendant from his first and his second marriages. Um, so both in legitimate lines, whereas Henry VII was John's descendant through his third marriage to Catherine Swimford. But the line was illegitimate because their children had been born when Catherine Swinford was his mistress. Um, the children were legitimized when the parents got married. I think that was under the reign of Richard II. But then Richard was overthrown by his cousin, Henry IV, who also happened to be John of Gaunt's legitimate son. And Henry IV barred his half-brothers, si half half-siblings, from ever inheriting the throne. So, like, them and their descendants. So you could say actually that Catherine had a better claim to the throne than Henry VII. I can see now why they wanted to marry into Spain. I can, it's all making sense. I think, honestly, I think her lineage is one part of the puzzle, definitely. Oh no, absolutely. Because obviously we're going to talk about this a bit later, but the reason why Spain got married, were married into England was um, they were the only ones that refused to see Perkin Warbeck, I think. Mm, yes, especially Isabella, so Catherine's mother, she was very supportive of Henry VII and his reign, whereas other countries were, you know, quite eager to believe Perkin Warbeck and his pretensions to, to the throne. Oh, absolutely. So a bit more about Catherine growing up. Do we know what her childhood would have looked like at all? Well, during the first year of her life, Catherine just followed her parents around. 
they were deep in a religious war against the Moors. Um, so they were trying to push them out of Spain. It was the Christian Reconquista of Spain, so against um, the Muslims. Isabella, Catherine's mother, was she was not fighting with the army, but she was with them. And she decided to bring her children along with her. The last, the last remaining more stronghold was uh, Granada, and it fell in 1491. So Catherine was just six. She was six years old. And afterwards, Isabella and Ferdinand um, and the children, they traveled quite a bit around Spain. Catherine only found a more permanent home uh, eight years later in 1499 when her family set up at the Alhambra Palace, so in Granada, and she was 14. So let's just say that Catherine had not been used to a lot of consistency so far. I think that out of the 16 Christmases of her childhood, 13 were spent in different cities. So it must have been very, I mean, quite unsettling, um, even difficult to move around so much. We we often talk about how the court of England is, you know, nomadic in the 16th century, moving from palace to palace. But for Catherine, it was on a whole different level. Very often she slept in different beds and in houses that did not even belong to her parents. Very often it was abbeys or things like that. So... Yes, all I can think about when I think about her childhood is must have been unsettling, definitely. No, absolutely. That's, that sounds quite unstable and not unstable, but, you know, obviously as a child, you want security, you want comfort. Absolutely. So it must have been quite hard, would you say, to get a not a decent education, because obviously we know Catherine was well educated, but were her tutors also on the move with Catherine and her family? So. Yes, um, so Isabella had, Isabella felt that she had not been properly educated and she wanted to fix that mistake with her children. And so she was, she was very involved in the education of her children, um, her son, but also her daughters. So Catherine, she was taught Latin, which, well, back then was only taught to boys, and she also studied history and poetry and genealogy, law, arithmetic, literature. She pretty much had a humanist education. And for a girl at that time, well, it was pretty remarkable. Um, Catherine had very, very good education, as you said, but she was she was also very smart. Mm. And on the side, obviously, because she was a girl, she was also taught what a girl must know, so needlework and music, dancing, how to manage households. Um, and I think it's actually Catherine who brought Spanish embroidery or black work embroidery to England. And obviously uh, a very special mention has to be made for her religious education. Isabella, so her mother, was very, very famous for her piety, and Catherine would go on to be famous for just the same. Catherine was taught from the start that God was the most important thing in her life. And it's safe to say that she was to find a lot of comforts and strength in religion throughout her life. 
I mean, being pious was expected back then. Um, but there were those who were religious because it was normal, because it was expected. And then there were those who were religious because they were pious, like really, they felt it in their bones. And Catherine was of this second category. Her faith was just immense. And I think it is very important to understand her choices later in life. No, I, I completely agree. Obviously, we know how important religion was to Catherine. And if you go back, you can see how important it was to her mother as well. So you, mm. she's clearly learned that from her mother. So would you say as well, growing up, Catherine was very close to her mother, especially? I think so, yes. First, because, well, she was the baby of the family. She was the youngest of, uh, I think, five siblings. Yes. Isabella and Ferdinand had five surviving children. They had two children who were stillborn, but then they had, um, so Catherine had three sisters, Isabella, Joanna, and Maria, and a brother, John. Um, and it looks like Catherine was very, very close to her mother. And just Isabella was very involved in her children's lives for the education but also you know as a mother she was very loving I think that maybe she was also a little bit overbearing <laughs> but she was very loving and they were a close-knit family I think I think Catherine grew up very very loved and very supported no um I completely agree with you on that I think Catherine learned her values later on in life from her family unit and I think you know as we're going to talk about it later when it comes to the divorce in 1528 onwards you can see she's got very strong family values. No absolutely I think it was very important for her. Before she married Henry VIII she was engaged to Prince Arthur the elder brother of Henry VIII do we know when they got engaged? Yes, uh, Catherine was three years old. Well, actually, she was almost four. Uh, it was the Treaty of Medina del Campo. It was signed in November 1489, so a month before Catherine's birthday. And this is when Catherine was promised to Arthur, Prince of Wales, so the son, the eldest son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. And we did mention before that um, her lineage may have, you know, it was it was part of the reason. But I have to admit, this treaty has always baffled me, considering that the Tudors were a recent little thing in terms of international politics, and they were not well established in England yet. Henry VII was dealing with pretenders, who were threatening his very recently obtained throne. Both England and Spain also wanted the alliance because, you know, against the French. But I can't help but think that Ferdinand and Isabella kind of gambled here with Catherine's future. Um, but I don't know, maybe that's what happens when you're the fifth child. <laughs> no, when, when you put it like that, you do think that it is a risk because obviously the Tudors were new and... It, the reign, Henry VII's reign, I wouldn't say is the most successful. You know, he had 
it was successful, you know, it maintained peace, but he was paranoid from the beginning. And <laughs> well, rightly so, I would say. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. But you'd think, you know, are the, you'd think from Spain's point of view, are they trying to get a child in every political power? So they've got a real stronghold in every country. That's actually very likely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So we know she'd got engaged to Prince Arthur at a very young age. No, definitely. Um, when did she start? When did when did she start? When did she come over to England to marry Arthur? Well, the plan at the beginning was for Catherine to go to England at the age of fourteen. So that would be fourteen ninety nine. Except that Catherine's brother John died in fourteen ninety seven. And then his unborn, unborn daughter was stillborn a few months later. And then their sister, so Catherine and John's sister, Isabella, died the following year. And then Isabella's son died two years later. So it was like dominoes. And Catherine's other sister, Maria, was sent to Portugal to replace Isabella uh, on her throne in, in her marriage. And basically, Catherine was left alone at home and her mother clearly did not want to part with her, which can be understood. Her father, Ferdinand, was a bit less emotional about it, but still he was reticent to part with Catherine's dowry. Um, That was, I think it was 200,000 crowns. So it was a lot of money back then. But... Yeah, the result was the same. Like the Catherine's departure kept on being postponed. It could not be postponed forever, though. And Catherine left in May 15, 1501, yes, for England. Um, it took her three months to just reach the coast. And then she had to fight like really bad sea storms. So she only landed in, in England in Plymouth uh, in October. It was a five-month journey. And I don't know, maybe it was a sign that her life in England was going to be quite rocky. You, you could say that, to be fair. <laughs> it took her five months to get there. She should have just turned around and stayed where she was. I know. It's like, nope. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could tell me about when she gets into England and there's the source where Henry VII rushes to go and see her and he's banging on her door. Is there any truth to this, or is this just a propaganda myth? As far as I'm concerned, it is true. He did want to see her uh, any means necessary. He he said he wanted to see her even if she was in bed. Like, he wanted to see her. And he did. Um, Catherine just got ready really quickly, and uh, and he did see her and he did see that she was, you know, the beautiful young uh, lady that she was and all was well. Thank God. <laughs> I, find that, I find that so out of character for Henry VII. It's a bit of a why? <laughs> I think it's, it's out of character when you think about Henry VII at the beginning of his reign. Hmm. But by 1501 he had become very paranoid, uh, even more so than at the beginning of his reign. I mean, his reign had not been very 
calm and quiet. So I think he was paranoid a bit of everything and everyone. And I think it was also quite well known that Catherine's father, Ferdinand, was, you know, he was not the most trustworthy person on the planet. So I think Henry VII was paranoid, but I can understand why. Oh, yeah. When you talk about it, I can thanks obviously you read a lot later about how untrustworthy Ferdinand is once Isabella of Castile's passed away and mm. you you do understand it a little bit. But obviously Catherine's here now to marry Arthur. Could you tell us anything about their marriage ceremonies? Well, they got married on the 14th of November, uh, 1501, at St Paul's Cathedral in London. They had met about 10 days earlier, so that's quite, you know, quick. <laughs> and Catherine was led to the altar by Prince Henry, Duke of York. He was 10 at the time, and pretty sure that Catherine could have never guessed that he was to be her husband one day, but that's a spoiler. Um, the the ceremony was was glorious and lavish, uh, and the festivities as well. It it was the wedding of the heir to the throne. the The prince whose birth had united the houses of Lancaster and York. He was the promised son who was who was supposed to bring a golden age to England. So Henry the Seventh, his father, although he's known for his parsimony let's say um he was not like that for everything he just chose very carefully where he put his money and on that occasion he was all out and and yes then following that uh, as was the tradition Catherine and Arthur were put to bed in the bedding ceremony so the public ceremony and what happened afterwards was to be very discussed about in the future. Yes, it's a the, the few our next few chats and in later is going to be very hotly debated. I think when it comes to Definitely. that to that marriage bedroom, <laughs> them pesky two teenagers. I know. But how long were Arthur and Catherine married? Do we know? They were married for about five months. Uh, Arthur died, sadly, on the 2nd of April, 1502. We're not entirely sure what killed him. Um, could have been sweating sickness or influenza, tuberculosis. I even read somewhere um, that it could have been plague. Catherine was ill as well for weeks, but thankfully she recovered. And I used to think that it was a sweating sickness because it was in the area at the time, but... Considering that Arthur fell ill in March and only died in April, and that Catherine was ill herself for a rather extended period of time, I don't think it was a sweating sickness. It was it was much quicker in terms of you know instead of, in terms of killing. So my money is on a bad case of influenza, maybe paired with the cold and the dampness of the Welsh marches. Uh, where they lived no absolutely I think they're not married for a long time and it's obviously again it's his death that is discussion of why did he die you know oh he was sick from birth I think I 
what I've read is when he was 14, he had an illness and then he just had kept having recurring illnesses from then onwards. That's what I've read. I, I read the same thing. I read that it was, he got gravely ill and recovered somehow, but his body never fully recovered. So mm. I think this is, even this is what happens now, You your immune system gets weakened. And back then, obviously, there were no antibiotics and, you know, all the sort of medicine that we have now. So I think that his immune system never fully recovered and he was catching literally everything. Um, so I do think that he was quite weak. Yes. No, yeah, I completely agree with you. And it's obviously really tragic that he dies. What What was it like for Catherine? Because obviously we're talking about her story today. And I think the next few years of Catherine's life are tragic. Yes. Well, after Arthur died... Catherine's mother asked for her to come home, but neither Ferdinand or Henry VII thought it was a good idea. And the reason was money, obviously, as always. Catherine's dowry had not been paid in full yet. And so only part of it had been paid in the shape of, you know, jewels and goods and, and even some cash. So that was paid when Catherine first arrived uh, to England. But what was left to pay was supposed to be paid in installments. And Henry VII wanted the rest of that dowry, obviously. And Ferdinand did not want to be financially in charge of Catherine again, and he didn't want to pay. Well, technically, she was a widow, so he did not have to be um, to be in charge of her, financially speaking. Morally, you could argue otherwise, but yeah. So Catherine stayed in England after Arthur's death. Uh, she's staying in London. Um, Henry VII thought about marrying her himself when his wife, Elizabeth of York, died in 1503. But thankfully, Catherine's parents both fiercely opposed it and it was quickly forgotten. <laughs> um, so Catherine and Arthur's brother, so young Henry, who was now Prince of Wales, were betrothed instead and the wedding was planned to happen when Henry turned 15 so that was in three years time. Catherine's dowry was supposed to be paid in full and Henry VII would support her in her household in the meantime. Well that was the theory. We all know that did not happen and yeah shall we shall we get on that now? Yes absolutely. Um... So obviously Catherine's in limbo from 1502 to 1509. And we know Henry VII constantly changed. Well, maybe our listeners don't know, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But sometimes Catherine was in favour and, you know, she was treated well. Or she was basically in poverty. Yes. So, yeah, let's just back up a little bit then for, you know, to have everything settled. So... Once she was betrothed to Henry, Catherine's only obvious next steps were just um, to be patient. She had to wait for Henry to be 15, which would not happen until 1506. And obviously, in the meantime, some details had to be taken care of for the marriage to happen at all, because Catherine's had Catherine had been married to Arthur before, 
so he was Henry's brother and because of that a marriage to Henry would be against the laws of Rome because of consanguinity if the marriage had been consummated if it had not been consummated it was only affinity but either way they needed a dispensation for the Pope in order to marry and this this was done while they were waiting for Henry Henry VIII to turn 15. Catherine swore that her marriage to Arthur had not been consummated, the dispensation was given, and then just Catherine just had to wait. Um, I think that she expected the next few years of her life to be quiet, maybe even a little dull, just, you know, waiting for the next chapter to start. But yes, it was it was going to be a really tough time for her. Um, and mostly it was because of Henry VII and Ferdinand of Aragon, so the two father figures in her life. I don't know about you, but I do like Henry VII as king. I, I think he was there at the right time. At the, he was the right person mm. for England then. But he treated Catherine appallingly. Um, it was shocking. And I think it, it all really started at the death of Catherine's mother, Isabella. She died in 1504. And when she died, Catherine's value um, lessened dramatically in Henry VII's eyes. Because Catherine was, she was no longer the daughter of the co-rulers of United Spain. She was only, she was only the daughter of the King of Aragon and the sister of the new Queen of Castile. So Henry VII made absolutely no secret that Catherine was less valuable uh, now that her mother was dead, which ultimately put her betrothal to Henry um, in jeopardy. Henry VII was postponing Henry and Catherine's marriage, even after Henry turned 15, actually. He was, he was not so secretly looking for other candidates as a bride for his son, and he was also trying really hard to convince Henry himself, so the future Henry VIII, to give up from the marriage um, with Catherine. And he was really good at it because for a moment, actually, Henry actually said that he did not want to marry Catherine anymore, which is something that for a while I didn't know. And when I found out about it, I was like, wow. And at the same time, Henry VII was keeping Catherine short on money, deliberately. He had given his word that he would support her financially, but he got back on it officially. It was because he had not received the second part of her dowry, and it was the truth. But really, it was because he wanted a better, younger bride for his son, and he just kind of wanted Catherine to be out of the way. On top of that, Catherine was rarely allowed to come to court and to see Henry, whom she was supposed to, you know, marry one day. Um, she she was lonely. She was. She was lost. I mean, let's not forget she was alone in a foreign country. She was isolated. She was learning English, but she it was still, you know, she was still not fluent in that language. She was she had to get used to everything in England. It must have been really hard for her because she had absolutely zero control on anything in the matter of her marriage to the future Henry VIII. She had never control. She had zero control over it. And must have been very bleak, actually. No, absolutely. I think it must have obviously been there's more sadness to come for Catherine, sadly. But I think this period is such a young woman 
it's it's dreadful, you know. Henry the Seventh shows such cruelness, and I mean, it's not our character, you know. We we know that he could be cruel, but I think Henry the Seventh goes down in character, and like in my opinion, is um when Elizabeth of York dies. You know. Yeah, I think I think he was deeply in love with Elizabeth, and it must have been a huge blow to him when she died and in terms of you know in terms of his feelings obviously because he was he was grieving and we all process grief differently but also considering the fact that she had such a bigger claim to the throne that he did and the fact that he was on his throne partly because he had agreed to marry her and unite the houses of Lancaster and York and now she was dead. So he must have felt even more paranoid and even more uh, unsettled. And he must have been feeling like everyone was out to get him, especially now that Elizabeth was dead, which is no excuse for how he behaved. But it's the beginning of an explanation that I think we can all understand. No, absolutely. I think when we're going back and looking at the 16th century, we can't look at it with modern eyes. And I think that's a lot of, that's the thing that, you know, a lot of people get upset about is, you know, knowing you have to look at it in what we see it today. And I think history is history. And that's how we have to see it. We have to go back and be a 16th century person. No, absolutely. It's, uh, it's impossible to judge the actions of people who lived four, five, six hundred years before us, because they lived five, four, six hundred years before us, and their world was completely different, um, and their their values and just the way they thought. So it's completely impossible, and I feel that sometimes, even for Catherine, actually, um, we try to make these people into these modern people, these modern characters with modern reactions and, you know, oh, she was feminist or this and that. And yes, we'll get back to it later, but Catherine was, but we cannot make them 21st century people because they weren't. And in order for them to be relatable to us, we have to start thinking like them it has to come from us we have to shift our perspective we have to understand how they thought because otherwise no they cannot be relatable because our world is so different no i completely agree and i'd like what you've just said on the mug so i can when i'm drinking my drink drinking tea i can go yeah this is my opinion <laughs> <laughs> i love like, that i'd like that on a t-shirt on a mug jumper tote bag whatever <laughs> you know what go for it do do that merch you have my uh you have my official permission <laughs> listeners there'll be a merch coming soon <laughs> coming soon lovely but there's there is something i do want to say though um yes Catherine was in limbo during these years mm. she had a measurable life let's let's be honest um, but there's one good thing that happened during that time is that she was appointed ambassador in 1507 for her for her father. 
And she was the first female ambassador in Europe, which I find amazing. Um, in truth, I think it was Ferdinand's idea for Catherine to actually stay in England and have more importance at court and basically be the vocal physical reminder of the treaty and of the agreed betrothal. It was very easy to forget about Catherine when she was voicelets and, you know, living in Durham House where she was basically a virtual prisoner, let's, uh, let's face it. But now she was her father's ambassador. It was giving her a legitimacy and more time at court. And what I love about this period, this, you know, this few years is that Henry VII thought that she would be easily swayed and manipulated, but she proved him wrong. She, I mean, she was only 22 years old. So this is especially amazing. And I love that it was such a difficult time in her life but she found the strength to pull herself together and stand her ground and remind everyone that she was still here. Yes, she was miserable, but she was here. She was Catherine. She was the future queen of England and she had a voice. And I think this is the, the yeah, this, this was the best time during, during her years. And I think limbo is the best word that you've used before. Yes. Yeah, I just say, lim I think it is just limbo, you know, she's waiting for someone to decide what to do with her. No, absolutely, she's she's like, she's half betrothed. <laughs> she's, she's officially engaged to Henry, but she's very much aware, <laughs> as is everybody else, that her position is as far from rock solid as humanly possible. So, yeah, in limbo. Yeah. But we know that Henry VII dies on the 21st of April, 1509. Spoilers for the listeners if you didn't know he died. <gasps> and this is where it... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that was amazing. Sorry. <laughs> we know that Henry VII dies and... Things get a little bit better for Catherine when Henry VIII becomes King of England. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, yes, because, I mean, within days, Henry VIII says that he wants to marry Catherine. And so, as you said, Henry VII died on the 21st of April. And then Henry and Catherine were married on the 11th of June. So that was really quick um, to put together a wedding. They were married at the Palace of uh, Placentia, um, which was later on to be known as uh, Greenwich Palace. So this is where Henry was born. And it was a pretty private and intimate ceremony compared to Catherine's marriage to Arthur. Uh, wedding, sorry. Um, but they made up for it because uh, then they were crowned together on the 24th of June, and this time it was to be a very uh, public and lavish and just like a really glorious ceremony. And eight years after leaving Spain, Catherine was finally Queen of England. I do find it's amazing that he wanted them to be crowned together. It was his way of not rewarding her, but like going, you know what, she's waited all this time, I need to show her off. <laughs> you know, Henry was 
quite obsessed about courtly love and chivalry, even if, you know, when you think about Henry VIII now, this is not what you think about, but he was, it was basically, <laughs> he lived by these rules. And I think that um, from his point of view, he was the knight in shining armor who was coming to rescue Catherine from her poverty and this very difficult time in her life. And he was raising her to the throne of England and he loved every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> Henry VIII, that's him. He likes um, to be the yeah. knight in shining armour. We know at the beginning it was very happy for them. You know, they, they were a love match. They, I, Well, maybe from Catherine's point of view, maybe, or maybe just from Henry's point of view. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about what the early years looked like for them. Honestly, they must have looked like the fairy tale golden couple. They were, they were both young, beautiful, and powerful, and happy. It was, it was like nothing could stop them. Really, uh, they were doing quite a lot together. By you know, by the sixteenth century standards, and um, they had shared interests: um, music, reading, learning in general, um, theology, hunting. So I think we can definitely say that for a long time, Henry and Catherine were happy together um i do want to get back to the love match thing though mm. i think that at first it was definitely still a political match it was you know it was about the alliance between henry and ferdinand but you're right they appeared to be in love i think i think catherine was really in love with henry i think that her personality was a much better match to Henry's than it had been to Arthur's. And to be fair, back in 1509, it was very difficult not to love Henry. Mm. He was he was young, he was athletic, he was handsome, he was down to earth, he loved to have fun, he was musical and intelligent. Well, he did have, you know, his flaws for which he's famous now, but his qualities back then were outshining them all. On Henry's part, I think it's possible that he was in love with Catherine. I think that's it's exactly what he thought, at least. He thought himself to be in love with her and he respected her, which mm. is a big thing. Um, but the more I look into his personality, and we'll do that briefly because this is about Catherine, but the more I look into it, the more I doubt his capacity of loving someone mm. more than himself. And I'm not saying that to throw shade at him. I'm, I'm actually mm -hmm. wondering. Um, someone told me one day that Henry may have wanted Catherine and impulsively decided to marry her as soon as his father was uh, dead because she had once been Arthur's. And, you know, Henry had grown up in Arthur's shadow and he had always been very jealous of him. And so he wanted what had once been Arthur's. It's entirely possible. It's actually it's actually very believable. So I'm not entirely sure yet what I think about that. Mm. But I think both options are, yeah, both options are very believable. Um, but I do think that if if Henry loved one wife, it was Catherine. Yeah, I I do think that was his first love, shall we say? I think. Because I think it's a bit of a debate again for him 
it's between when his mum died and him becoming king he was very closeted himself wasn't he you know he was very very shielded so it it could be very highly probable he was a virgin himself that that's highly likely i mean obviously we can never know mm. um because it did have servants and everything but i do think it's very likely um especially even in later life later years he was known to actually be quite prudish. Um, mm. He didn't like to talk about bad activities and um, was known to uh, blush quite easily uh, when talking about that. So it's very likely that he was a virgin, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's maybe why he fell for her, you know, it's his, possibly his first lover in his... <laughs> I say girlfriend, it ended up being his wife, but she ended up being his wife. No, absolutely. I think, I mean, we'll never know if she was his first lover, but I think he, she was his first love. Mm, absolutely. Once they're married, and obviously they look like this golden couple, um, we know Catherine gets immediately pregnant, and we know the baby was a stillbirth in 15... 10. For Catherine, we know of six pregnancies. Uh, five of them resulted in miscarriages, stillbirth, or early death. Catherine's only surviving child was the Princess Mary, so a daughter, future Mary I. And so Mary was her fifth pregnancy. And there was one pregnancy after that in 1518. Um, don't remember if it was a miscarriage or a stillbirth for this one. I think it was a stillbirth. But contrary to what people think, to what a lot of people think, Henry and Catherine continued. Um, they kept on trying after that for mm. a baby. It's only around, I think, 1524 that everyone, including Henry, fully realised that Catherine would not bear any other child. And I'm... I'm actually of the opinion that Catherine was probably pregnant more than six times, sadly, but that some of her pregnancies were simply not recorded, especially if she miscarried very early on, because um, so Catherine seems to have been, you know, very fertile, which mm. is the problem was not conceiving. The problem was leading a successful pregnancy to term. And while we are talking about the pregnancies, I think we do have to mention her second pregnancy, which is very, very important. Um, she gave birth to a boy, Henry, Duke of Cornwall, on the 1st of January, 1511. He was christened and he was thriving. He was healthy, healthy enough for his parents to leave him behind at, nurse, at his nursery and go celebrate his birth with pageants and tournaments and you name it. But sadly, baby Henry died uh, 52 days after his birth. And we do not know why, but it could have been anything really. And I think as parents, Catherine and Henry must have been devastated, but also as monarchs, it must have been such a huge blow them, the kingdom and only recently as we mentioned before it 
it had only recently come out of decades of civil war and Henry felt like he needed a son to bring some stability. And I mean, I'm I'm very happy that Mary eventually proved him wrong. But in 1511, so at the death of, of baby Henry, back in 1511, with the knowledge that Henry had and with, with how people thought and the society and the monarchy, his quest for a son, the reason behind it, I, I fully understand it. While it was still good for them, do we know what sort of queen Catherine was? You know, was she a good queen? Was she liked? I think that she was a very good queen, yes. Um, And the question, was she like, is a big yes. People loved her. Uh, People in England loved her. People who worked in her household loved her and were very loyal to her. I think that she wasn't a good queen, probably because she had been raised to be one. Mm. And she was fierce, but she was also kind. And people knew how to recognize that in a queen. And there's the proof in the kingdom's reaction to Henry wanting to set her aside. She had such massive support, especially from, you know, the women. But she had a huge support, um, which which tells me that she was indeed really, really loved. And as queen, yeah, I think as queen, she was more than just, you know, the perfect queen, the kind mm. queen, the generous queen, which she was. But she, what we always forget is that she was a big advocate for education like especially women's. She left her mark there, definitely. She she was the patron of humanists like Juan Luis Vives and Erasmus, even Erasmus, you know, with whom she was known to converse regularly. And Juan Luis Vives wrote a treatise that's called Education of a Christian Woman in, um, in 1523. Uh, Catherine commissioned it and it was dedicated to her and it was advocating for the education of all women, rich and poor. And it was a little revolution because Vivis was saying that women were intellectually the equals of men and that their education was not only beneficial for them as people, but it was actually essential for the sake of the kingdom as a whole. And well, very few people thought like that back then. So yes, it was a little revolution. I think she was phenomenal in that in that aspect. Catherine, well, Catherine and Juan v- Luis Vives that I mentioned, they created together a study plan for Catherine's daughter, Mary. And so Catherine was very involved in her daughter's education, just like Isabella had been in hers. Mary's education was quite progressive for the time and I think it influenced an entire generation of girls whose fathers then wanted to educate too. It it broke the mold. I just love Catherine for that. Um, I think she was absolutely brilliant and people often speak of Sir Thomas More Mm -hmm. and how he gave his daughters the same education as he gave his son which was absolutely fantastic, don't get me wrong, but I think people tend to forget that 
he did that as an experiment. His daughters were essentially his guinea pigs. And the difference with Catherine here is that Catherine educated Mary the way that she did because she knew that Mary would learn and thrive just as well as a boy. It was not an experiment. It was it was a belief. It was trust in her daughter and in the female gender as well. Mm. No, absolutely. I think Catherine was such a big patron of women need to be educated. And I think this is a little bit in her mind as well. Obviously, I'm speaking for her. You know, she can't argue against this. You know, I think she knew she wasn't going to conceive again with after Mary. And I think she wanted Mary to be the best educated woman possible, to be the best queen ever. Mm. No, I agree with that. I think she had she had such a, a great faith in Mary that was obviously rooted in her love for her and the fact that she was the only one who had survived. I think she believed that God had a reason to let to have you know to let Mary live. It was God's um, plan. It was God's decision to take away all her babies, and so surely it was also God's plan and decision, conscious decision to let Mary live. It was Mary's destiny to rule England in her own name, at least in Catherine's heart. Mm. So I think that's that's why she she gave her the best possible beginning in life that she could. And I think this is no, this was wonderful. No, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, you read so many records of how close she was with Mary and, you know, she absolutely adored Mary. So, you know, when it comes to a little bit later, how heartbreaking it is for the both of them when what happens, happens. Well, definitely. I might I might actually tear up a little bit later on because it's just... <laughs> it's it, it's <laughs> just true, though. It gets me every time. So I was wondering if you would like to discuss all your theories on what was the breakdown of Henry and Catherine's marriage. I think that Henry was already very frustrated with the fact that he did not have a legitimate son. Um, but it is when he deeply fell in love with Anne that he saw the opportunity for something else, for a second marriage. I think, I think it may have been in his head before, to put Catherine aside but um, it was such an unprecedented step and massive thing to do even for him that I really think that's his it is his feelings for Anne that detonated the whole thing um, now when I say that he fell madly in love with Anne I think that he thought so <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm the opinion I'm of the opinion that any love that ends up in decapitation was probably never love but <laughs> that is another discussion and actually mm. that's another spoiler so very sorry about that <laughs> yeah, stop spoiling but, everything <laughs> i know but henry the fact is that henry was obsessed with Anne, and he wanted to marry her and he wanted to have sons by her 
And I think it's, yeah, it's the main reason for all this because Anne would not, um, would not sleep with him unless they were married. And I think that's why he started it all. He, he wanted her and he wanted sons. And he, it became really clear that Catherine would not give him a son. So you put two and two together and that just pushed him in that direction. And it's, it's actually quite sad because had the Princess Mary been a boy, Catherine would have remained the undisputed queen until her death, whether or not Henry had fallen in love with Anne. So it really came down to Mary being a boy, being a girl and not being a boy. That's incredibly sad. If any or all of the pregnancies Catherine had survived, you know, we wouldn't have had the six wives of Henry VIII. He would have stayed married. No, absolutely. And we... I do think that we would have had the Reformation anyway, but mm. further down the line and definitely not the way it happened. But um, we, yeah, Catherine would have absolutely, without a doubt, stayed queen until her last breath and there would not have been the great matter. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think it is time to talk a little bit about the great matter. <laughs> Yes, let's do it. (laughs) Let's dive. (laughs) Let's dive into the rabbit hole. (laughs) That is the great matter. (laughs) Well, I think I I will start this by saying that the biggest misconception uh, about the end of Catherine and Harry's marriage is that it was a divorce. But Mm. actually it wasn't. It was an annulment, which meant that the marriage was not just simply ended or cancelled or whatever, but it was like it had never existed. It was null and void from day one. And so, yeah, we mentioned the great matter. And this is, the great matter is basically, for people who don't know, it is uh, the proceedings between England and Rome. So between Henry VIII and the Pope, who was Pope Clement VII back then. Uh, I think that, Henry realised that Catherine would not give him any more children around 1524, not before that. And about two years later, so he developed feelings, whatever they were, for Anne. And this is how it all started, as we as we mentioned before. Um, but obviously, Catherine was in the way. Um, so first they tried to convince her to enter a nunnery because that would invalidate the marriage altogether. Uh, But she refused. So then they, when I say they, I mean Henry and his advisors. So they accused her of having lied about her virginity uh, on the day of her marriage to Henry. Henry accused her of having lied to him about consummating her marriage to Arthur. And for this, he used, he quoted the Bible that said, the man who takes his brother's wife uh, in marriage does a forbidden thing and will remain childless. It, uh, it had not bothered Henry too much 20 years before, but now that he was without a son, and again, he was sonless, but he was not childless, mm. like the Bible said. Um, so now that he was without a son, it was... It was suddenly a problem that weighed on, and I quote, his conscience. His conscience was a big thing during the Great Matter. 
Um, so he convinced himself or he let himself be convinced by others that his marriage to Catherine was an offense to God. It was it was against God. And that is why their children had died, which first I think was very, very cruel because, mm. well, he he put Catherine's words into question. He questioned um her words he questioned her integrity um but also he low-key accused her of being responsible for the death of five of, of their children because he said well you lied you lied to me and god got so angry that he killed five of the children and i think for a mother grieving um the death of five of her children it, what, I, I don't think cruel even begins to cover it. And this is about this whole Henry and Catherine thing. This is what shocks me the most. And this is what really gets me. He, yes, it wasn't even veiled. He accused her of being responsible for the death of their children. So the Pope used every technique that he could find to delay the inevitable. And he kept on postponing and delaying his answer to Henry's demand to annul the marriage. The Pope became the prisoner of the Holy Roman Emperor after the sack of Rome in 1527. And the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, was uh, Catherine's nephew. He was the son of Catherine's sister, Joanna. And so it is it was never really likely that the pope would give henry what he wanted and put the emperor's aunt aside and humiliate her so i'm not sure henry realized that because let's face it he was uh quite self-centered and quite mm -hmm. obsessed about his own problems and his own quests but the fact is that it was always very unlikely that the pope would pronounce himself in favor of Henry. So eventually, um, and I'm going to maybe simplify a little bit here, um, Henry lost patience. God was refusing him a, a son and Catherine was refusing to agree to annulment and she was refusing to admit that she had been a virgin. And then Anne Boleyn was refusing to give herself to him, um, you know, in terms of body. And the Pope was refusing to give him the annulment. So for someone with Henry's personality and the fact that he had never really learned to cope with being told no, it was rough <laughs> for him. It must have been really, really frustrating. And probably, he, again, he was so self-centered and believed so much that he was due everything that his heart designed that he probably didn't even fully understand why he was being refused all these things and so ultimately that that was uh, that led to the break with rome henry convinced himself or was convinced by thomas cromwell is more likely um that the pope had had no authority to give the dispensation in the first place, you know, all these years ago. 
1501 when he gave it for Catherine to marry Henry. So the Pope had allowed them to marry, but he had had no authority to do so because it was England and Henry was the supreme authority here or should be. Um, so Thomas Cromwell was being very clever here and he was a problematic man, but we can give it to him that he was insanely clever. Mm. So Henry was recognized as supreme head of the Church of England in 1531. And then in 1533, so early early on, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, finally gave him um, what he wanted. He finally gave him the annulment of his marriage. And Henry married Anne Boleyn, who was already pregnant with Elizabeth. Catherine was now officially the Dowager Princess of Wales as the widow of Prince Arthur. She obviously refused um, until her dying breath to be addressed as Dowager Princess of Wales. She completely rejected that title. She refused to recognise Anne Boleyn as queen or to agree that her marriage to Henry was not valid. And I think she's she's remembered for this. She's remembered for this obstinacy to, you know, her refusal again and again and again to say, you know, she was like, no, Henry, I'm your wife. And it lasted for years and she was miserable for it. She's, she's really remembered for it. Mm. But I don't think she's remembered positively for it. And she should be. And it really annoys me when people when people say, oh, she was so stubborn. She should have just let it go. There was no way that Henry would ever get back to her. And in a sense, they're right. But Catherine was not stubborn just for the sake of it. She was actually, she was really protecting her daughter's future as Queen of England. And when I say that, I usually get people reminding me that even if Catherine had agreed to the annulment, Mary could have remained in the line of succession because, you know, Mary had been conceived in a time when both her parents um, believed their marriage to be legitimate. So Mary could have remained legitimate also. But to this, I'm like, just, I want to be honest for one minute. Had Henry remarried and have a son, whether it was um, by Anne Boleyn or anyone else, do you really believe that Mary would have remained his heir? No. Mary would have never ruled England, and Catherine was well aware of that fact. She was protecting her daughter's destiny, as we mentioned before. It was God's will to take away her five babies. So it was God's will to let Mary live, and God didn't do anything for nothing. In Catherine's mind and heart and soul, she knew that he had a plan for Mary. It was Mary's destiny to rule England in her own right, just, just like Isabella had ruled, had ruled Castile in her right. There's another reason, and I think this one is often overlooked. Um, Catherine loved Henry, and I am not saying that she did I'm not saying that she wanted to have her happily ever after with him. I'm saying that she didn't want to annul the marriage because she believed in her heart that it was valid. And because she believed that, she also believed that if Henry remarried, he would be guilty of bigamy 
in the eyes, not of the law, but of God. Mm -hmm. It was a sin. And I honestly think, I really think that Catherine was protecting Henry's soul. She genuinely believed that he was putting his soul, his eternal rest in jeopardy. And I think that's why she fought so fiercely. I think you've spoke about this so well. It's obviously, it's, it's a difficult period for Catherine and everyone involved, but I think Catherine gets overlooked in a sense when it comes to this time. You know, it's how it impacts Henry VIII and how it impacts Anne Boleyn. Mm -hmm. But um, And obviously, you know, we know Anne did have to go through a lot in this period, but I think what Catherine goes through is so much worse. You know, she's not just fighting for her, she's fighting for her daughter. She's, in her own head as well, she's also fighting for Henry because he's going to damn himself to hell. I think that a lot of people think that Catherine was fighting for herself to mm. remain on the throne. But when you, in a sense, in, the, in a very small part of it, she was. I mean, she had been betrothed to Arthur since she was three. She probably did not have any memories of, of when she was just Catalina and not the future Queen of England. But I feel like she was fighting for everyone but herself. She was mm. fighting for Mary. She was fighting for Henry. She was fighting for God. She was fighting for what was right. And it just, it really, it really saddens me when I see that she's not remembered the way she should be remembered. Notice now in the last few years, you know, Catherine is starting to be remembered for what she is, you know, a strong, independent woman who was a mother, a queen, a warrior queen you know she was the daughter of a warrior queen and it, it gets forgotten as fascinating as Anne's I don't want to compare them and compare the sufferings and uh, because they both suffered Anne suffered in her flesh and Catherine suffered in her mind and in her soul so yeah I don't I don't like to compare them but Catherine Catherine suffered too, and Catherine was her own person. And Catherine had been raised to be Queen of England. It, it was part of her identity, it was part of who she was, just as much as, you know, Catherine was her name. It was who she was, it was... And she ended up in exile. So it's just, it's just such a far cry from everything that she had been made to expect. Uh, from her life. I mean, I mentioned before that um, she, thought, she thought being Queen of England was her destiny and she was never going to give that up for all the material comforts in the world. And she, she actually did give up on these material comforts because she could have had them. She chose not to. Henry exiled her from court. One day he just left. I think he left hunting. And he left her behind, and Catherine did not know that she would never get to see her husband again. She just did not know. And she waited, I think she waited three days to write him, to write to him to see where he was. And he had the audacity to reply that she should never write to him ever again. 
that was in 1531. And then New Year's Day, 1532, she sent him a gold cup for his New Year's gift, as was, you know, customary. And he returned it, which is, you know, it always makes me angry when he does that. Um, but yeah, then Catherine was moved from one house to another. Every time it was further from court, it was damper and it was obviously very difficult emotionally for her but it was also taking a toll on her health um so firstly henry sent her to hertfordshire in a castle called the moor and then she was moved to hatfield who's it's also in hertfordshire and then she was moved to enfield and then to Amthill castle that's in bedfordshire and then to bogden in cambridgeshire and eventually she was moved to Kimbolton Castle. And when she was in Kimbolton, Catherine was, she was staying in like one room, one and only room. She was refusing to come out of it, uh, except to attend mass. And she was wearing a hair shirt and she was fasting a lot. She she was holding onto her face to be able to, to bear what her life had become. She she needed her faith to keep going. She needed she she really she really needed God by her side back then because the only thing in her life that was still there to take care of her and care for her. Because don't get me wrong, but she had been abandoned by every male figure in her life so far. We're talking about Ferdinand, we're talking about Henry VII, and now we're talking about Henry VIII. So she really needed God to oh. believe that it was going to be all right. And I think the, um, the worst part of her exile was not that she was exiled. It was that she was forbidden to see Mary. She, she asked and she asked and it's, and it's, um, it's heartbreaking and, and people asked on her behalf, but Henry was too afraid for Catherine and Mary to, you know, to plot against him. So she she just refused for them to meet. Uh, he refused for them to meet. Um, they were not even allowed to exchange letters, although they did manage to pass some through. Her health began to decline and she became really weak. Uh, she could not keep anything down. She made her will in 1535 and then she died at Kimbolton Castle on the 7th of January, 1536. It's just horrible to think that the last years of her life that she didn't have her daughter, she wasn't in comfort. You know, I know it's not like, you know, you don't have to be a queen to be happy, but, you know, she didn't have anything familiar. The very sad thing is that up until the end, there was a part of her that believed everything was going to be okay. She would get no plot twist, you know, no. at the end of the book. That would not happen for her. And the knight in shining armor that Henry once was, he would not come rescue her. No one was going to rescue her. She died in, in pain physically, but emotionally as well. And away from her only daughter. And I think this was incredibly cruel on Henry's part. She had maybe two to three periods of her life where she's truly happy and the rest is just sadness and I think that's so horrible to think you know she's no absolutely I think when we think about tragedy 
and tragic figures in Tudor England. We think about Anne Boleyn, we think about Catherine Howard, we think about Lady Jane Grey. And yes, they were tragic, absolutely. They had a tragic fate, um, which they did not deserve. But Catherine had a tragic fate too. And this is this is massively overlooked. So obviously we know Sablish died on the 7th of January, 1536. Do we have any theories as to what caused her death well back then there were rumors that Catherine had been poisoned either by Anne or Henry or both but the rumor started when Catherine's body was being embalmed so obviously they removed her organs for it and they found a black growth on her heart so they thought about poison which honestly was a fair assumption because you know but today, experts tend to agree, and I agree with it too, that it was cancer, which is the most believable option. Tudors could not have understood it, but it does fit with the symptoms that she exhibited. So fatigue and weakness, which could have also been caused by her excessive fasting, but mm. also she was vomiting quite a lot. And this is one of the symptoms. Um, and again, I think that the cause of her death, if indeed it is heart cancer, is so tragic because in a way you can say that she died of a broken heart. No, yeah, absolutely. It's it's ironic that, you know, she did have cancer, you know, and it was on her heart, you know, her heart is what killed her. Absolutely. And in more ways than one, really. Obviously, we know Catherine was in exile when she died. Um, do we know if anyone was able to get to her? And, you know, anyone that she was close with got to spend her last moments with her at all? Well, yes, actually. Um, Henry had banned her, her, her daughter and her closest friends from seeing her. Um, but Catherine had a very fierce friend in the person of Maria de Salinas. Maria had come with her from Spain in 1501 um, had served in her household for a while until she married William Willoughby, the Baron Willoughby de Eresby, and moved to Lincolnshire. And Maria simply refused to let Catherine die alone. The imperial ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, was you know, telling everybody at court that Catherine was nearing death. He was updating everyone that, you know, she was very weak and she did not have long to live. And Maria just decided to grab a horse because she was in Lincolnshire. She grabbed a horse and she rode all the way to Kimbolton Castle. And she lied to the face of the guards saying that she had lost the paperwork. You know, like the the letter allowing her to enter the castle. And I'm still not sure how, but it worked. So Maria was reunited with Catherine and she was with her when she died. I mean, good on Maria for defying everything. You know, she risked so much in doing that. I mean, I think we all need a friend who's willing to risk to risk treason for us. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not going to commit treason for me, why are we friends? <laughs> exactly. No, Maria was a, a really, really good friend of hers. So, well done, Maria. 
we know that Catherine was degraded to the princess dowager in her lifetime, well, in the latter half of her lifetime. But do we know she was allowed to lie in state? Yes, she did, actually. Um, she was given all the honours that Henry VIII thought she deserved. So the honours due to her rank as Dowager Princess of Wales, not as Queen of England. So she lay under a canopy of a state for some day. Um, canopy of state, sorry. And she had a state procession. The coffin was covered in black velvet. The service included like bishops and abbots and there were golden standards. Like it was not a low key mm. um, um, ceremony, but she was not buried as Queen of England. And I just love that now her resting place says Catherine, Queen of England, because that's who she was. And well, it was only added in the 20th century by Queen Mary, um, who was the wife of King George V. So I went there and they told me, oh, we're so sorry. It's close for the day. We're rehearsing um, a show. And, you know, I put on a brave face and said, oh, I understand. But I think my face was not um, brave enough <laughs> because... The woman, the lovely, lovely woman, um, was like, "Oh, did you did you come from very far?" And I said, "Well, no, I'm actually I'm based in London, but I did I did come just for this." And I told her a little bit about my book and that I was really interested in tutors. And um, she was like, "Okay, wait a sec," <laughs> and she went to get her, you know, her boss employer. I don't know how it's, I don't know who it was. But basically, they allowed me to get in. Um, and so for about like five, ten minutes, I was alone with Catherine, no tourists. And it was just, it was just incredible. Honestly, that's amazing. I mean, the, how lovely of them to do that for you as well, you know. So lovely. And I'm very, very, um, I'm very thankful for that. It was I think it was even better than if I had come to the cathedral and it had been open. <laughs> you, you've had but, 10 minutes alone. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, yeah, alone with Catherine for 10 minutes. That's great. What is the legacy of Catherine of Aragon? Well, Thomas Cromwell, who was her enemy, said that if not for her sex, for her gender, Catherine could have defied all the heroes of history. And I think it's a great way of putting it. I think he was right. And well, obviously her biggest legacy is what we talked about before, about her championing the right for girls to be as well educated as boys. Uh, she influenced generations. But it's not only that, at least not for me. He, she was a woman and a queen concert, not regnant, and she was a wife. So she was supposed to submit to whatever her husband and her king wanted. And in a way she did that, you know, she rarely argued with Henry and she supported everything that he did, even when his actions were not beneficial for Spain or even for herself. So she was, she was the perfect wife by the standards of the 16th century, but she was also her own person. Um, 
she was the first female ambassador she you know in 1513 she even acted as regent of England for Henry and she knew she knew when to stand her grounds she knew how and when to stand up for herself she knew I think what's important for Catherine is that she knew how to choose her battles she showed everyone that yes she was a woman she was a wife but she had her own views and she knew she knew to recognize what was more important than the will of her husband and what was not. She knew who she was, she knew what she deserved, what her daughter deserved, and she never backed down. Henry, Henry took everything from her. And for me, this is, this is where I get really passionate about it. Henry took everything from her. He took her freedom, he took her voice, her jewels, her lifestyle, her title, her identity, her daughter. But he never broke her. He never broke her spirit. And she died saying that she was the Queen of England. And even as a 16th century woman and as a wife, she knew how to stand up for herself and demand what was owed to her. And for this, I think this is her true legacy. She she showed that a woman could do both and she influenced generations of women. Honestly, Catherine showed more strength of character than Henry VIII ever did. She was just incredible. But we can relax a bit now and we yeah. can start talking about non-important Tudor things. All right. As I like to call it. <laughs> and this is my favourite question that I've asked every guest so far and it's, what are your Tudor pet peeves? Well, I've mentioned it before and I'm going to circle back to it because it is a massive pet peeve for me. Uh, it is when people assume that movies and TV shows just tell the truth. Catherine is often thought to be this old hag that Henry had married because of political reasons but had never loved you know, this stubborn queen who was clawing onto her throne. And she was not. And I think that, you know, movies and TV shows and, and how she's portrayed, really, it has a lot to answer for. And separately, I actually have a very big beef with the ending of The Spanish Princess, which is a show on Catherine's life. And actually, this is a real spoiler here. So should I actually talk about it? What do you think? Um, no, yeah, talk about it. Ruin it for people. <laughs> All right. I'm going to ruin it for everyone. Well, I'm not even going to talk about the fact that they make Catherine and Arthur actually consummate the marriage because I was like, Ugh! but the ending, um, Catherine leaves the court with Mary. She gives Henry what he wants. She gives up. And Catherine would have never done that. It's not even a historical accuracy, inaccuracy, because honestly, it's against everything that Catherine lived for and died for. And it makes me so angry because I think that Catherine was treated so appallingly when she was alive and that in death, she, she deserves so much more than that. She deserves so much better. 
No, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned the Spanish princess because there are so many problems with that show. Have you got a favourite book on Catherine? It can be non-fiction or it can be fiction. Well, usually in terms of historical books, I prefer non-fiction. But when it comes to Catherine, I do have a soft spot for Alison Ware's fictionalised version of Catherine. Uh, so it's the first of her six Tudor Queen series, um, Catherine of Aragon, the, the True Queen. I I read it. Oh my god, I think it's like five years ago now. Um, so maybe I should read it again and see now that I've, you know I've spent quite a few years studying Catherine to see if my opinion of that book has changed. But I do remember really uh, enjoying the book and feeling for Catherine, but also not never thinking that she was whiny because it's so easy to make Catherine mm. really whiny and yeah I remember having immense respect for her when I was reading so I think I think it must mean that Alison Ware did a good job rave about the Six Shooter Queen series I think I love every not all book. of them though oh which one do you not like Catherine Howard's yeah, I do have to agree that one is a bit weaker for me in the series. It's just this, I find it a bit more blaming Catherine and um and shaming her. So I don't know. This is how I felt about it. But so another question I've got is again on books. But have you mm-hmm. got a favorite Tudor book that isn't about Catherine of Aragon whatsoever? Well. Anything by Dr. Tracy Borman, really. I just I love her. Um, her fictions, her non-fictions, and recently, you know, her her podcast on the Six Queens is just fantastic. So usually when I see her name, I just come running. Um, but the latest one that I, I actually really liked, and I did not expect to like that much, was about Edward Seymour uh, by Margaret Scard. It's king in all but name. And I don't have a strong affinity with the Seymour brothers. Um, A bit more with Edward than Thomas, to be fair. But uh, I was not expecting, I did not expect to like that book that much. I thought it was well-rounded and objective and... um, you know, really trying to, yes, stick to the facts, but also bring as much psychology as possible and mm. and try to understand his actions. And I, honestly, I, I really enjoyed it. I understood it a lot. I understood him a lot more. And I used to think that he was this religious fanatic, you know, and... In fact, he may not have been, you know, that protestant craziness <laughs> of, you know, that time. So, no, it was a good one. I liked it. I recommend it, actually. That's going into the add to basket. Perfect. <laughs> so, before, I've got two more questions for you before I let you go, because I have taken so much of your time. Oh, have... come on. I've, I've been the one talking so much. <laughs> you got a favorite media portrayal of Catherine I know it's hard but (laughs) it is hard and I'm going to sound incredibly picky but I'm yet to find one that I really really love 
um, because I want to watch a movie or show with Catherine that is proud and stubborn for the right reasons mm -hmm. and that is intelligent and powerful and also beautiful with her red gold hair and her blue eyes instead of the equally beautiful but you know dark hair and dark eyes that we seem to associate with a Spanish woman today mm. I want I want to see all this and I want to see how pious she was and why it was important for her and above all I want to see her story through her eyes not through Henry VIII's eyes Anne Boleyn's or even Mary the First's mm. so maybe I'll write it one day but um I think I have all these um, these things that I want to see, and so far nothing has managed to, you know, gather it all in one amazing show or movie. But yeah, this said, if I do have to choose, I think that Maria Doyle Kennedy will forever be special to me because, well, the Tudors was my first approach to this era. So I will always have this uh, nostalgic feeling for this actress's face. Um, and I do think that as an actress, she actually did a, a wonderful job. So yeah, I, I would say her then, if I had to choose. No, yeah, I, I think it is every Catherine betrayal I've seen, and I've watched a lot of Tudor programs and films. And... Me too. You know, each all of them get something right, but it's usually they only get the divorce bit right. They, whereas they never get the whole picture. No. Whereas I felt Maria Doyle Kennedy showed her love for Henry and also how important Mary was and her religion. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm happy you said all that, but especially um her love for Mary. Have you got a favourite fact on Catherine? I think that it will be forever that she had a better claim to the throne than Henry VII. This is absolutely hilarious to me. Um, not hilarious, but I find it very ironic. And it's just, <laughs> it's just gold. <laughs> she had a better claim. Amazing. I just love that. So, Clemmy, that is us all finished up. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, not at all. Thank you so much for inviting me. Honestly, it was such an honour for me to be invited here. So thank you. It was my first podcast ever. So I'm I'm really glad to have done it with you. Thank you so much. 